We'll take out this insert that says Unfolding Grace. We are looking at Numbers 10, 11, no, we're just looking at Numbers 13 and 14. But we're, we're covering this section of the book of Numbers, which may not be at the top of your reading list. I get that. Uh, but we want to, this is an important phase in the life of God's people. And as Taylor mentioned at the top of the service, we're working through these passages of Scripture in the Old Testament. And this is one that actually uh, we are informed in the New Testament how to interpret this. And so in this principle of letting the Scripture interpret Scripture, we're going to do that. 1 Corinthians 10, it's the, the beginning of your insert there. The Apostle Paul writes these words, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers, that means the, the Israelites, you know, a thousand years before that, the people that we're talking about today, that our fathers were overthrown in the wilderness. These things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. So Paul is saying to that church in Corinth in the first century, the end of the age has come upon you. So I've had some people ask me in the last couple of weeks since Russia invaded Ukraine and like, is this the battle of Mag and Magog and Gog and all this kind of stuff? Are we in the end? And then I said, of course we are. We are in the end time. We are in the last days. And the scripture said that since the coming of Jesus, we have been in the last days, the last age, upon whom the end of the ages has come. That's what that means. All this means is this: we've been in the final chapter. Nothing, nothing else has to happen in redemptive history. Christ returns, and then we're, we're done, right? The, the earth is renewed. So... Paul is saying to this first century church, the end of the ages has come upon you. Jesus has come and done something. And now for you, you're going to look back at this Old Testament and it's going to be instruction to you. But we receive that instruction in a particular way as those upon whom the end of the ages has come. As those upon whom Jesus has come. That instruction is not a threat to us. It is help to us. I am the father of five children, the fifth of whom gets his license in like two weeks. So we have four driving children, and I've heard on more than one, more than two occasions, some phone call that begins like this. Dad, everybody's okay, but there's been an accident. These things just happen. If you're parents, you understand and you understand also that that's the first thing you want to hear. Everybody's okay. If everybody's okay, I don't care. It's just a car and we have insurance, right? It's going to be a deductible and that's it. And then a raised rate. But we can manage that. We can manage that. I just want to know that the news that's coming is not fatal. When we look at instruction in the Scripture as those who are in Christ, you need to know this. You're okay. Nobody's been injured. Nobody's going to get injured. Or we can say, actually, Jesus has been deeply and gravely injured in our, in our spot. Therefore, the next news that's coming is not fatal. It's only instructive. It's only leading us to life. And so we're going to look at this passage from the Old Testament, and it's going to be instruction to us. But what it's not going to be is threat. And we're going to read through this, and we're going to have a temptation to identify with the heroes of this story. I want to encourage us to, idea, to identify with the people we'd most likely identify with, <laughs> the mass of people in this story, right? So here we go. We're going to look at Numbers 
13 and 14, and we're going to say here that from the Israelites, we may learn a lot of things, but from the Israelites in the wilderness, we at least learn something about faith, fear, and formation, how God forms us. Faith, fear, and formation. What we're going to do is we're going to walk through this passage. It is kind of long. There is a lot of text. We'll spend most of our time there, and I'll make some comments at the end about faith, fear, and formation. Where we are in the story, if you remember, God has given the Ten Commandments. We looked at that a couple weeks ago, Exodus 20. And then from Exodus 21 to 31, God was giving all this law to the people of Israel about how they were to live in uh, both in the wilderness and then in the promised land where they were, were going to end up. And uh, at some point in here, I knew I had to do like a little sidebar on the law of God in the Old Testament. So I'm just give me a couple minutes for that. I think we get confused when we read the Old Testament and see things that God's people are commanded to do that they no longer do. And some things God's people are commanded to do in the Old Testament, they still do, and that causes us confusion. Why does it say, in the, for example, in the Old Testament, you should not commit adultery, and we still shouldn't do that, and you shouldn't eat bacon, but clearly we like bacon. And in the Old Testament, like you sh- you're not supposed to blend the, the fibers of your shirts together, but we have cotton poly blends in our shirts. Why is that? Are we just picking and choosing which laws to obey and disobey? Isn't it just kind of judgmental to take some laws and apply it to some people and not? No. There's actually a reason for this. There's a very clear theological reason for this, taught by God's people to God's people for 2,000 years. One helpful way of thinking about the law that we've thought about for hundreds of years in the Old Testament is seeing three aspects of the Old Testament law. This gets a little nerdy, I'm sorry, but I think it's helpful. It's helpful, theologians tell us, to think about the law in terms of being the civil law, the ceremonial law, and the moral law. I'll explain those. The civil law are those legal codes and ways of being that is the nation of Israel practiced in the Old Testament that set them apart. That set them apart. So that's things like we are going to have a certain dietary restrictions. Those were for the people of God, the nation of Israel in the Old Testament that set them apart from other nations. They weren't to eat shellfish. They weren't to have different kind of fibers together in their clothing. And so there's lots and lots of laws. There's like 614 laws total, so I can't name them off all here. But you know them, and some of them, we look at them and we're like, that's kind of weird today. And you know what? They are. You know why? Because they're 2,000, 3,000 years old. They're kind of weird today. But that set the nation of Israel apart. When Jesus comes, we learn, oh, that was pointing to him because it's in him that we're set apart. We're not set apart by being part of a political nation anymore. We're set apart in Christ. And so those laws fall away, not because they're bad, but because Jesus fulfilled them. Another part of the law is what we call the ceremonial law. And those are all the laws that have to do with how you worship. You read the Old Testament and like, they are really into the specificities of how they worship and fold up the tent and come and, and do the sacrifices and everything. Why is that? Because Old Testament worship centered around the sacrificial system. Jesus comes and he is the ultimate sacrifice. It was always pointing to him. So those laws about worship, the ceremonial laws, fall away, not because they were bad, but because Jesus fulfills them as the the one who is the ultimate sacrifice. So they may be instructive for us. In fact, we kind of get our order of worship from some of the way that the Old Testament talks about worship, but they're not a law for like righteousness anymore. 
So they're fulfilled by Christ. Civil laws fulfilled by Christ. Ceremonial laws fulfilled by Christ. And then the third aspect of law is what we call the moral law. This is the part of the law that is based in God's character and shows us what we were made to li- how we were made to live, how we were created to live. This is for God's people. It's for all people because all people are created in the image of God. In the Old Testament, these are basically contained in the Ten Commandments and all the tributaries flowing from the Ten Commandments. In some ways, Jesus fulfills those as well in that he is the perfect embodiment of that moral law. And he fulfills it perfectly, and that righteousness that, he, that accrues to him because he fulfills that perfectly, he gifts to us upon whom the end of the ages has come. That's why we, can, we know that the, the news about instruction coming to us is not threat if we're in Christ. Just ways of, of living. So we also see in the moral law, those get picked up and repeated in the New Testament. So the next time somebody asks you, like, well, why do you Christians obey some of the Old Testament laws and not others? You simply say, well, some of them were fulfilled and others endure. It's a very simple answer. Okay, there we go. Exodus 20 to 31, the giving of the law, and then they, they hang out at Mount Sinai for about 14 months. And then they, they get ready to move. God's going to get ready and bring them into the promised land. But there are some signs in the text as this is happening that people are starting to get a little bit squirrely, a little bit antsy, a little bit rebellious. In Numbers chapter 11, God has pr- providing for the people this miracle bread that shows up every morning on the ground called manna, which just translated means essentially, what is it? What is it? What is it? It's manna. It's bread. And it was satisfied them, and uh, it's probably where Tolkien got his idea of lemless bread from, lemless bread, um, the elven bread. But uh, uh, they get dissatisfied with it because it's the same thing over and over again. And they say, you know what? If we would have gone, if we would have stayed in Egypt, we would have had meat to eat. They were slaves. How much meat were slaves really eating? I don't know, but. Uh, they were like, oh, we want to go back to Egypt because we don't have any meat. We want meat. And so the Lord says, okay, you want meat? I'll give you meat. And he causes quail, a, a massive, massive flock of quail to be blown in from the Mediterranean. And it says, like, the quail so much, it's, it's just all over the camp. It's like coming out their nose. They asked for meat. Meat they got. Then in Numbers 12, Moses' brother Aaron and sister Miriam, who are leaders among the people, began to say something like this. Is Moses the only person God talks to? Why do we need to listen to Moses? I mean, we know Moses. He's our brother. And so um, they begin to incite this, like, disgruntled rebellion, right? And that kind of gets put down. And then we're up to Numbers 13, where we're at today. It's context for Numbers 13. Uh, They are ready to go into the promised land that God had promised to Abraham. And to Isaac, promised through Joseph, promised to Moses. Ready to go into the land. Now, what we need to know is, like, it's, um, it's, it's a tribal society, right? We have a, a sovereign nation today invading another sovereign nation. Like, that's not what's going on here. This is, there was, you didn't need a passport to go into the land of Canaan. It was just tribes that were everywhere. The only major national, international power was Egypt, and they had to be In those days, they had to be held together by despotic dictators like Pharaoh. They just would be power, power, power. So it's uh, they are kind of invading the land, and we're going to see that next week too. But we just got to get back into that time. Like it's just a bunch of tribes that are everywhere. 
Numbers 13, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. So he said, I want you to, I'm going to give you the land. You send some people in to do recon on the land. Figure out the best way to take it. Have them go and see what it's like. Come back and give you a report of what the land is like. From each tribe of their fathers, you shall send a man, every one a chief among them. So Moses sent from the wilderness of Paran, according to the command of the Lord, all of them men who were heads of the people of Israel, and these were their names. And I, I skipped a bunch of stuff. I, I want you to go back and read it, but I'm skipping it here because I don't have room. Uh, from the, you know, all the 12 tribes, verse 6, from the tribe of Judah, a man named Caleb. From the tribe of Ephraim, Hosea, the son of Nun. These were the names of the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land, and he, Moses called Hosea, the son of Nun, Joshua. So the two, two I drew out there, Joshua and Caleb, I drew out for an obvious reason. They're going to become important here in a second. But the Lord says to Moses, I want you to get a leader from each of the 12 tribes. Remember, the 12 tribes were descendants of Joseph's 12 sons. Get a leader, a military leader, somebody who would be a good spy. You get them together, and you send them into the land. And so, and two of the, those names are Caleb and Joshua. Well, Hosea first, whose name was changed to Joshua. So they go into the land. I'll skip some verses there. You can fill them in, read them later. They go into the land, and lo and behold, it's a lot better than the wilderness they've been living in. They've been in this desert area, which is not like a sandy desert so much as just this scrubby, ugly, not a lot of vegetation, but it's not pure sand either. It's just like a barren area. They go into this, the land of Canaan, which is basically modern-day Israel, let's say, about that. Those are the, the borders. And they're like, wow, it's really, it's really great here. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. It means just like the crops are good, things grow here. It's, it's great. It's, just, it's flourishing. The problem is there's also a lot of strong tribes there, strong uh, groups of people that are going to threaten them. And as evidence of this strength, they have these fortified cities. In fact, archaeologists have done research in that area of the world from those centuries, you know, so now we're talking 3,400 years ago, finding unearthing cities that have walls that are up to 50 feet tall and 15 feet wide. So as fortifications, I don't know if you think about civilizations that long ago having that much fortification, but it was pretty common back then. And so they see this, this great place with strong people. Okay, we're up down to verse 25 now. At the end of 40 days, they returned from spying out the land, and they came to Moses and Aaron and to, to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told him, now they told Moses, we came to the land which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev. The Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the hill country. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. So the majority report, 10 of the 12 spies come back and say, it's great. In fact, I neglected to mention this. They, one thing they mentioned is some of the grape bunches are so large, they can only bring them by carrying them on a pole between two men. It's awesome, they say. However, the people are really strong. Now, we see the first signs of real slippage here. 
Because it says in verse 26, remember Moses sent them out. Two things happen here. Verse 26, they came to Moses and to Aaron and to all the congregation. And the next verse down, next line down, they brought back word to them and to all the congregation. And verse 27, they told him, we came to the land which you, Moses, sent us. So why are they reporting? The authority sent them out. Why are they reporting back to everybody? Well, they're trying to hijack the situation. Right? They don't like it. They're afraid of these big people. And Moses is a pretty faithful guy, so I'm guessing they're thinking, if we just tell Moses we, we don't think we can go, he'll be like, we're good, we're fine, let's go. So we're going to tell it to the whole congregation, right? It's, uh, it's just depending on public hysteria and groupthink, right? It happens all the time today, right? You don't like what somebody did to you, whatever you are, I'm going to take it to the Internet, right? This is, this is the same thing. Why? Because crowds are stupid. We know that. It's, we know crowds are stupid and easily, it, easily fearful. The, there's emotional contagion, especially fear, works better in crowds than it does in individuals. So these guys come back and are like, we're afraid Moses isn't going to b- believe that it's, it's too much, so we're going to start telling the crowds. Uh, verse 30. Oh, and, oh, yeah, the Lord sent them out, and it says in verse 27, And they came and told him, we came to the land which you, second person singular, you, Moses, sent us. I'm sure Moses is like, well, the Lord sent you. But they're like, no, you sent us. So again, I I find a temptation to want to identify with Caleb and Joshua in this. Probably we also need to be aware how much we might identify with the the spies who were afraid, who had families, who weren't certain of the future, who had just until a few months ago been slaves who didn't have any resources, who didn't have any cultural history uh, of, of being a strong culture. Verse 30, but Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Now, why would Caleb say something like that? Well, because Caleb's not the first person who said that. We saw a couple weeks ago in Exodus 3 when God gave the people his name, I am. He says, tell them I am is bringing you out of Egypt. In Exodus 3.17 he says, and I promise that I will bring you up out of affliction out of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. By my own name I pledge to you I will bring you out and I will bring you in. He by his own name, he brought them out of Egypt, and now they're like, well, I don't think you can take us in. That's why Caleb's like, no, he'll take us in. Guys, we've come. He just defeated the most powerful army in the world, in Egypt. Remember the Red Sea? Remember the Ten Plagues? Remember the, the magic bread on the ground? That's why Caleb is saying it. He's not the first to say it. Verse 31 the men who had gone up with him said, we are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad, a, a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, the land through which we have gone out to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, or the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from uh, 
the Nephilim. And we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. So we didn't know if like, they changed their story. They're like, let's talk to some more people. And you give a bad report about the land. They're like, the people are stronger than us. In fact, we see the, uh, the Nephilim there. Who are the Nephilim? Well, the Nephilim are from Genesis chapter 6, the, the, the men of old, the men of renown. They're, they're you know, historically, the story is like they're very evil, gigantic race of people, maybe demonically inspired. And we thought, well, maybe they were wiped out by the flood. Maybe the flood wasn't universal. Or maybe these people are just large enough that they remind the spies of the Nephilim. They're like, they're big. They're giants. And the land itself devours the inhabitants. Would you have to say, like, hold on. Like, so what, what's the, what's, which is it? Does the land devour the inhabitants? Or are there giants in the land and really good fruit? Because it doesn't seem like it's devouring them. Right? They're just, they're, you know what it's like when you're afraid. You're just grasping for straws. Like, oh, I, this, there's a good reason that I, this can't happen. It's like when in the middle of the night when you're worrying about something and all these things rush in. I'm talking about myself sometimes. And you get up and like, okay, you know what, let me get a cup of coffee and pray about this. And after you pray, you're like, yeah, that, why am I so scared about this? It was so big in the middle of the night when you're laying on your bed trying to sleep. But after a cup of coffee, you're like, oh, it makes more sense now. They're just grasping at straws. Like, there are people there and there's great gra- grapes and the land kills everything. Well, anyway, let's just keep going. We're like grasshoppers. Why, why would they say that? Well, two reasons. Yes, grasshoppers are small, but more than that, grasshoppers are edible. Not to you guys, but to these guys. They ate grasshoppers. Maybe some of you have. There's that bug exhibit at Southeast Way Park sometimes where you get chocolate-covered bugs. At least they did when we were, had kids were young. Um, we never ate grasshoppers. But they did in the ancient Near East. And... Uh, these, these men are saying, like, we're going to get eaten by these people. We're like, we're like little, you know, we're like little chocolate truffles. That would be to us, right? Numbers 14. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, would that we have died in the land of Egypt. Or would that we have died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into the land? To fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Okay, yeah, Egypt just tried to kill you. Let's go back there. We all know that when we're intensely fearful, decision making is not, you know, that clear. These guys are embodying that. Um. But what's being proposed here is a wide-scale rebellion. Moses is probably, so it says the whole congregation, but sometimes that means the representatives of the whole congregation. I mean, if there really are these hundreds of thousands of people, they they can't talk to all of them at one time. So it's probably, it's a very well-organized system where uh, leaders of thousands come and and speak as as representatives. So he's probably talking to the, the leaders, but these are the powerful people, and they're thinking we should rebel. We should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. So it's a legit concern. Then, verse 6, Joshua and Caleb step up. And Joshua and Caleb, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes and said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, the land which we passed through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into the land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord 
And do not fear the people of the land, for they are bred for us. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Guys, trust the Lord. That's all he's saying. We're not grasshoppers to them. Like, we're not little crunchy snacks to them. They are like bread to us. What would that be significant for the people of Israel? God had given them bread every day of their journey to that point. It's like this, this is the Lord's sovereign care of us to give these folks into our hand. If we go in, they will flee. Remember the promise of the Lord. And then the people said, you know what, Joshua and Caleb, thank you. You're right. Thank you for reminding us of the promise of the gospel in the Old Testament. The Lord has made these promises. I think we feel better now. Let's get a good night's sleep and we'll go in. That's not what they said. Verse 10. How did they respond to this great sermon and plea from Caleb and uh, Joshua? Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. Right? They're not buying it. But the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. So what happens, like the Lord's like, okay, time out. I'm going to step in. Let them know this whole stone, my people with stones thing, that's not a good idea. So we're not sure how he appeared. But it was in a way enough to get the people's attention. So maybe it's in the, the pillar of fire or the cloud of smoke. I don't know. But like, they're like, oh, the Lord's here. Maybe we shouldn't stone these people that are bringing back a good report in line with the promises God's already said. In verse 11, and the Lord said to Moses, uh, this, by the way, is a common conversation between the Lord and Moses about these people. How long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? Plagues against all the gods of Egypt. Let, I breathed on the Red Sea and it parted. I led them through on dry ground and then Pharaoh's army and their arrogance pursued them and I drowned the greatest army in the world right now and I overcame the one who thought he was God, Pharaoh. And I provided for you every day in the desert. That's the signs I've given to you. But they, they won't believe. Verse 12, I will strike them with, with pestilence and disinherit them. And I will make of you, Moses, a, a nation greater and mightier than they. So... God proposes that he thin the herd. These people are not, they're not helpful. And they're not obedient. And they're not faithful. Moses, let's just start over with you. And uh, what we see here is what we saw last week in Exodus 32. God's drawing Moses into relationship. And we know this because of how last, the, it, the conversation went last week and how the conversation goes this week. I didn't put it in here, but I encourage you to read verses 13 to to 19. Moses responds by this with this plea to God of prayer where he makes an argument to the Lord. Where he makes, he gives God reasons. No, Lord, let's not do that, let's not do that, let's not do that. And here's why, here's why, here's why. And we don't have time to look at it today. I've preached on it before. Like, I do believe this is given to us multiple times in the Scripture to be a pattern for us to pray to the Lord giving reasons, making arguments with open hands, but arguments. And essentially Moses' argument is, uh, if, you're, if, you, if you start over with me, if you disinherit this people, the Egyptians will not think you're as glorious, like you couldn't, you couldn't get them under control. Your glory will be tarnished in the eyes of the Egyptians. Now the Lord could have responded, I don't care. 
I'm glorious whether the Egyptians think I'm glorious or not. But Moses is given a reason. And then Moses says, but this is in line with your promise. You, the promise you made to bring your people in. And the Lord could have said, look, Moses, you're my people. It's not any less my promise to have a narrower group of people. And you, you know, it's probably Moses and the, the faithful leaders of the clans he was talking about because he'd already made promise to bring, to give some inheritance to the sons of Jacob. But it, it looks like from a human perspective, the Lord says, how about this? And Moses is like, no, 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 let's not do that. How about this? How about this? And the Lord says, okay, I'll do what you want, Moses. It looks like God changes what he proposes based on Moses' praying. Now, how does that square with the sovereignty of God? Well, if it doesn't, if your sovereignty of God is tiny, but if your sovereignty of God is big and actually the size of the sovereignty of God, we just say, fine, God's sovereign. He preordains free will decisions. Get over it. He's God. Right? So he really does change, and he really never does change. It's okay. He's the Lord. He's God. It's, I remember I had the yardstick up here and the things he reveals on the yardstick and the things he, he reveals that we don't understand that's off the yardstick. It's off the yardstick. It's okay. So from God's eternal plan, he never changes his mind. But certainly he really does change his mind from the human perspective based on the prayers of his people. That instrumentality, how does that work out? I don't know. We'll find out someday maybe. But maybe even in the, in the re- restoration of all things, our minds will still not be able to comprehend that. Here, it's, but it's revealed to us. He calls Moses into prayer and says, give me reasons. Call, he calls Moses into relationship like he calls me and you. Say, give me reasons. So he gives Moses reasons. Or he get, Moses gives the Lord reasons. And then verse 20, the Lord said, okay, I have pardoned Moses. Moses, I have pardoned these people according to your word, like you asked. Going on in verse 26, and the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron saying, how long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? I have heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against me. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in the wilderness, and of all your number listed in the census from 20 years old and upward who have grumbled against me, not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell, except Caleb and Joshua. But your little ones, who you said would become a prey, I will bring them in, and they shall know the land that you have rejected. So they complain like, why don't we just die in the wilderness? And God says, okay, have it your way. It'll take 40 years, but okay, I'll give you what you're asking for. In your rebellion, which, guys, judgment is always God giving us what we ask for in our rebellion. <laughs> he just gives it here. Um, one, we discussed this in our community group this week, and somebody said, aren't you glad to live after the cross? Like, yes. <laughs> the Lord does change. In the Old Testament, we see sometimes God brings that final judgment forward in time and visits in time. It's not unjust. It's not unjust. It's just him doing bringing judgment quickly. Usually he's so patient, we get used to that patient. Occasionally he brings that judgment into the present. For you, the cross, this is bringing all of our judgment into a specific point in time at Calvary on Jesus. So this, this judgment pointed to that judgment that's already happened for us, so that makes sense. Uh, so he says, you want to you, think, you want to die in the wilderness? I'll give you what you asked for. And so for 40 years, then they wander in the wilderness. And so we're going to look at taking the entrance to the promised land next week, but that's 40 years after this. 
And your kids are going to see the promised land, but you won't. You guys who grumbled against me, I'm going to let you die out here. Uh, This, by the way, does show us the impact sometimes of leaders on the people. The leaders were the ones that were faithless here. And a lot of people paid the price for it. That still happens today in churches and families and nations and pagan nations. Verse 39, when Moses told these words to all the people of Israel, the people mourned greatly. Now they believe God. Okay. Uh, Verse 40, and they rose early in the morning and went up to the heights of the hill country saying, here we are, we will go into the place the Lord has promised, for we have sinned. So they... Once they hear God say, okay, it's going to be 40 years, like, we were wrong. We were wrong. We're going to go in. We'll take the land, Lord. Not because they're being faithful, because they don't want the consequence. Here's the deal. The Lord said, you can't go in now. They're like, no, we're going in now. He just said, you can't go in now. So Moses says in verse 41, Moses said, why now are you transgressing the command of the Lord again? When that will not succeed. Do not go up, for the Lord is not among you, lest you be struck down before your enemies. Like, yes, God did say he was going to give it to you, but now he said he's not going to give it to you yet. And you're like, yeah, it's going to be right now on our timetable. And see, it looks like faithfulness, but it's not faithfulness at all. It's obeying for their purpose. It's kind of obeying for their own purposes. Verse 44 But they presumed to go up to the heights of the hill country anyway. Then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in that hill country came down and defeated them and pursued them even to Hormah. They went in and they lost. And they were in the wilderness for 40 years. Okay, so that's the story of how they they began wandering for another 40 years in the wilderness. And you see the stories that flow out of that. Not pretty, but these things happen. And they happen for our instruction. And that's what 1 Corinthians 10 teaches. And it may instruct us in lots of ways, but I do see some instruction here about faith, and some instruction here about fear, and some instruction here about how we're formed by God. First of all, by faith. And again, we are, right, we're, we're in Christ. We're exercising faith, but that faith is sustained by Jesus, and when we fail, we fall on him. And we walk in a courage in obedience that flows out of union with Jesus. So God has told the people, you can go into the land. I'm going to take you in. What we learn about faith here is that we can move confidently where God has spoken clearly. We can move confidently where God has spoken clearly, whether positively or negatively. God told them, I will bring you out of Egypt and into the land. He spoke clearly, and they left Egypt. Whoa, that was some, some they moved confidently where God spoke clearly. They were halfway there, but now they faltered. Right? They hadn't gone into the land yet. They could have because God had spoken clearly. Let me tell you another place where God speaks clearly. We actually share this in common with Israel there on the border of the promised land where we've already experienced some deliverance from slavery and have not yet entered fully in to the life that will come, which is where all of us are right now. Right? The, the, the kingdom has already 
come, we have been freed from our sins if in Christ Jesus, but the renewal of all things has not happened. And God has a word for us as he had a word for them, and it's a clear word. Let me read it to you from Romans chapter 8. These are clear words of God to which we can and I would say must attach the posture of confidence in our life. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? That's already happened. That deliverance, if you will, that deliverance from slavery has already happened. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things in that which is coming? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. So he goes on to say, In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am certain that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. God has spoken clearly about this. He has already done one thing in delivering us from slavery by giving us Jesus. He delivered up his son for us all. How will in the future he not give us all things? What possible posture can we have but confidence leaning on those sure words of Jesus? The, the fundamental posture of the life of a follower of Jesus has to be leaning forward, kind of with a smile, maybe with a smirk a lot of times. Like, I can't, I can't wait to see what happens. I don't know what's going to happen, right? It's going to be good, though. It's good. Even if there's hardship now, it's good. And we lean in with a faithfulness. We take words like Philippians 4, do not be anxious about every, anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. How do we act clearly on that? We cast our anxieties on him with the anticipation that he will guard us in his shalom, his peace. We give ourselves to that. We give ourselves like when in Matthew 6 where he says, don't be anxious, saying what shall we eat or what shall we drink, what shall we wear? Everybody seeks after these things, but your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. We fix our mind on saying, Jesus, I want to seek after you and trust you, and we believe that you add things to us. How do we know that he'll add those things to us? He's already given us Jesus, the best thing. Of course he'll give us the rest of the things. So where he's spoken positively, we, we lean in confidently, and where he's spoken negatively, Right? The, he said to the people, don't go up at the end. And they're like, I think we'll go up anyway. <laughs> so where he's prohibited things, faith is just the, the reasonable response to God's words. That's it. Where he's prohibited, we say, no, I'm going to trust him. We move confidently. Sometimes it's just good to ask the simple question, is there a place that, you, that we're not moving confidently where God has spoken? Or has God spoken and you're simply moving against it? I'm asking myself the same question. Sometimes we just have to ask the simple question, are we being obedient to the words of God? Not because, it will, not because we merit favor, but we're already rescued, right, in Jesus. But he's died to give us a life to live. 
And I would hasten to add, like, if the Holy Spirit of the living God is convicting you and bringing something to mind right now, take that as from the Spirit. Take that as the wisdom of God from the Spirit. Now, we might say, well, how do we know when God has spoken clearly? Well, I think this is sort of what we call the genius of the Protestant tradition. He's given us words in which he's spoken clearly. Now, if you're coming from a Roman Catholic tradition, it gets a little bit harder for you, to be honest with you, because sometimes we add, well, the words of popes and bishops and cardinals. Um, I want to respect that tradition, but say, that makes it really hard. <laughs> and uh, it gets a little fuzzy. I would encourage you to think, this is the clear word of God. If you're coming from some sort of more charismatic traditions, you might have the sense like, well, God speaks through the impressions he gives to his people. Eh, eh, let's, let's, that makes it hard, right? Let's go with the word of God. And treat these other things as wisdom, right? Uh, because the other piece of, of faith is like uh, we move confidently where God speaks clearly, but we move in wisdom where he doesn't speak clearly. But at those places, we base that wisdom on what he has said clearly. What? Okay. That, that was more confusing than I intended it to be. We move with wisdom where God has not spoken clearly, but we do so based on what he has said clearly. That, I know that's exactly what I just said, and I thought I would make it better by repeating it, but <laughs> somehow. It doesn't work with my kids either. Um, in Numbers 13.1, God has said, I will give you the land. That's true. Now, go send spies to figure out the best way to do it. How specifically are we to do it, the Lord? Well, go figure it out. But based on what I've clearly told you, you clearly get the land. But now I'm going to give you freedom to go figure it out. You do your best strategy, best thinking, best whatever. But in, what, what you're not free to do is use that strategy and thinking to say, we can't do it because I've spoken clearly, right? So he gives us clear parameters to run in and then says operate in wisdom in the midst of that. So here's an example. Last night a friend reached out to me and said, hey, Roger, what were, your th what were you thinking when these two guys came and asked for your daughter's hands in marriage? And I said, well, I was thinking no. But uh, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, Wanting to know, I'm totally joking because one of them is a member of our church and our worship team, and it was in the first service. But, um, and we, really, we knew both of them and love them and think they're great, so not a big deal. But um, wanting to know because uh, uh, the dad was about to ha face that own question for his daughter. And it was like, well, first is the guy a follower of Christ. Your daughter's a Christian, is the guy a follower of Christ. Why is that? Because that's something God has clearly spoken. Right? We're, not, we're not to be unequally yoked, believer with unbeliever in marriage. So don't, don't, intention, don't marry an unbeliever if you're a believer. That's what God has clearly said. Now, within that, we begin to ask wise questions, something like, are you employable? <laughs> like, those are, like, within that, you know, what kind of life do you want to build with my daughter? Why now? Why not in, you know, 15 years? Why? You know, uh, these wisdom questions based on what God has clearly said. I'm totally joking. Um, but these wisdom questions based on what God has clearly said, this is our way of being as the people of God. This is how we treat God's word with respect. Uh, so we learn something about faith there. We learn something about fear. Fear, very simply, here involves removing the Lord from the equation. Fear is not always wrong, right? So there's appropriate times where fear is an appropriate response to something, and we just lay that before the Lord. That's what the Psalms are full of. But also, the command, do not fear, is the most common command given in the Scripture. That would teach us that while fear sometimes is an appropriate response, sometimes also it's a sin. <laughs> and we need to repent. 
And what we see here is just removing the Lord from the equation. So in Numbers 13.1, it says the Lord sends them in the land. In Numbers 13.27, the people's like, Moses, you sent us into the land. And Joshua and Caleb are like, remember the Lord if he's pleased with us. And they're like, no, we can't do it because the people are too strong. Sometimes it's just good to ask the question, what are you afraid of? What am I afraid of? What am I fearing? Is it, quite, is it possible that we have eliminated the Lord from the equation right there? Let our fear be uh, an indicator of where we might be removing the Lord. Where are we being irrational? Like saying, the land devours everybody. I know there, there are people there and fruit, but it devours everything, but not the people and fruit, right? Um, it envisions the worst scenario. Our children will become like prey for them, which is a legitimate fear if God is not in the equation. But he is in the equation for the Israelites, and he is in the equation for us. And that's why we're heading to the communion table. The final thing is just formation. We see God bringing some strong recourse to his people in the Old Testament. And we said that his judgment, whatever, whatever he brings to us now is not judgment. So if you've ever wondered, is God punishing you for your sins and you're in Christ? The joyful answer to that is he actually cannot punish you for your sins. They've already been punished. He's already taken the punishment for your sins. He is, whatever hardship is in your life, it is not, if you are in Christ Jesus, punishment for your sin. It can't be, or God is unjust. He has already drank down that punishment. There may be discipline, it may, but it's discipline to, to reorient our affections for the things uh, that are good for us and for his glory. So some of you are dealing with hardship. And there are consequences to our sin sometimes. We think, oh, is God punishing me, you know, in this consequence? Nope, it's not punishment. It is loving, fatherly discipline, and he's coming after your heart, just like he was coming after Moses' heart when he was drawing him into relationship. Part of the reason we go to the communion table is to let that wash over us every week. That what we're celebrating in the body and the blood of Christ, in the, in the, in the bread and the cup, is the fact that that punishment has been poured out on Jesus. It's, it, it is justly ours but it's no longer ours, and we are free. We are free to be instructed. We are free to come to a text like my kids call me on the phone and say, Dad, no one's injured, no one's hurt. And then we can say, okay, now let's find out the damage. <laughs> let's find out the instruction. Let's find out what needs to be addressed. But we do this from a position of being whole already because of the work of Jesus. If you're in Christ by faith, we will invite you to, to the communion table.